Good morning. It is a joy to be with the saints this morning. You could open with me to the book of Psalms. I'd like to look at Psalm 86. Verse 9, all nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. Psalm 96, O sing unto the Lord a new song, sing unto the Lord all the earth, sing unto the Lord, bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful in all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. For he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. If you would, let's bow on our knees for prayer. <clears throat> oh, our Father, we bow before you. Teach us, Lord, to bow before you. Teach us to worship you as we ought. Teach us to be agents of your glory. Help us to understand the grand scheme of things. Help us, Lord. to do that much more difficult thing of obedience in our hearts. So easy it is to bend the knee, so hard to bow the heart and to apply it to all of the nitty-gritties of our lives and to connect those nitty-gritties with a very reason for existence. Speak to us, God, from your word this morning. We plead for your Holy Spirit. Lord, speak in ways which human words are not sufficient. May my human words not limit your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.
one more verse from Psalms 67. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. The title of our message this morning is His Glory, Our Story. And I believe, maybe, more than in any other instance, this burden, this message came more as a reproof, as an admonishment. And so I was indebted to respond. Specifically, here just a few weeks ago, I was speaking with a young man who was setting aside a period of time in his life to study God's Word. And um, I half-teasingly said, tell us what are you learning? You owe it to the rest of us who don't have this privilege. And he highlighted a particular course particular study he was doing um, based on the book written by Christopher Wright, The Mission of God. I said, oh, I know that book. We've read that book, studied that book as a family and as um, with our young people in Ivuna. And he looks at me And he says, Tim, you're the one that's indebted to the congregation. I've never heard this before. How can you be sitting on this kind of stuff? So I thought about that when I realized I have this time coming to, to speak to the congregation Another one, just a few days ago, we have a worldwide WhatsApp group for um, salt, salt worldwide, and um, a lot of different things come on there, but one of the things that the, the administration does purposefully is to shine the spotlight on different workers around the, the globe who are working in various roles in SALT, many different countries. And here a couple of days ago, there was one that came through, just a little interview, basic interview. A uh, young man, his name is Friedrich Miller. He's working in Cambodia, doing a SALT program there. And one of the questions was, do you have a particular sermon or book or conversation that changed your life that you would point back to? And he said, yes. In 2017, Jewel Martin taught a class at Calvary Bible School on the biblical basis for missions. I learned that the biblical basis for missions is more about God receiving glory than men being saved from going to hell. This was like a paradigm shift in my thinking and eventually also led me to keep a deeper look, to take a deeper look into missions on my own. Through this research, I have come to care deeply about reaching unreached people groups. This is a young man, I can, I think, safely assume was raised in a conservative Baptist setting, not much different from our own. And his words just, you know, rang true in my heart and brought back many memories as a teenager myself. And as that paradigm shift happened uh, for me, and there's this sense of, how can that be? How can that be that a young man can grow up in our church setting with all of its excellent teaching and miss that? So we want to talk about this morning... Many different people have used different terms to maybe put emphasis, a little bit different angle of this. Um, And actually, I'm going to refer to a handful 
Uh, some of these are sermons. Some of these are books. Some of these are series of sermons. Um, people that have impacted my life. And I am indebted. One of the ways that you young men can grow up here and not get this paradigm shift is if I would do too much of what I've already done. Um, sometimes someone who has given significant investment into missions becomes shy. <clears throat> a little bit like this. We had a question in the van the way home here the other night. Why is it so that those who are so poor are the ones who talk about volunteer, volunteer poverty? We had, that came through some last weekend, am I right? <clears throat> who talk about the dangers of materialism, etc. And we feel there's a danger of being written off, being on a hobby horse. <clears throat> so sometimes we're too quiet. Applying that to missions now. <clears throat> so I repent of that. Um, and yet, I don't think that's all wrong. I don't know what that perfect balance is. <clears throat> Steve Hawthorne wrote an article and kind of based his ministry um, titled The Story of His Glory. <clears throat> Daryl Champlin, in a series of sermons that he preached when I was a teenager going to Bible school, he called it The Eternal Purpose of God. As I already mentioned, Christopher Wright <clears throat> calls it the mission of God in his big textbook. Denny Keniston used this theme, World Christians. David Robertson wrote a book called A Vision for Kingdom Christianity, and he taught numerous sermons, uh, one maybe ten years ago, eight years ago or so, um, here at Harmony, where he focused on the fact that God is looking for a people <clears throat> And all of these things, at their essence, are getting to the same thing. God's grand scheme of things. This book, as a story from beginning to end, has some foundational themes. <clears throat> as a particular foundational theme, it has to do with God's glory. <clears throat> has to do with God's glory, an emphasis on God's glory rather than our betterment or rescue. <clears throat> I like to present this thing of God's glory as a narrative, a grand narrative from the beginning of this book to the end. It would take a week of teaching to do a basic justice to this topic. <clears throat> My wife warned me last night about that. So she asked how I'm going to handle that. I said, well, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm not going to keep you here all week. <laughs> but I'm just going to get started, and we'll see how far I go, how far I can get. <clears throat> I'm going to make an effort to, to do, give a skim a little bit today, but especially to explain some of the foundational concept. <clears throat> I like to present it as a framework, as a grid. People use many different kinds of imagery when you talk about these kind of things. As a lens through which to view all of the Christian life. As uh, a hub. And all the spokes of the wheel go out from that hub. <clears throat> God's glory. We've heard how that it is the chief end of man is to glorify God. <clears throat> Very famous. This book is a story from beginning to end. It has cohesion. It has a common sense. It has a sense common throughout all aspects of this book. This book is not yet finished. We're aware of that. 
there is a futuristic portion of this book. We are still within this narrative. We are still working out this gap in the New Testament before Revelations. A narrative, a story. So, I've been studying marketing a bit. Some of the, some research has been done, very convincing research, about what sells an item. And there's two major different ways in which companies tend to advertise. Some are just so caught up with themselves that even though there's science and they know there's science to back it up to the contrary, they cannot get off their hobby horse of talking about how wonderful they are themselves. How good of a company they are, maybe how long they've been in business, um, maybe how, you know, you see pictures of their, 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 their corporation, you know, maybe their building, maybe their fleet of trucks, maybe their huge crew of employees, and on and on and on, on, all the awards they've won, and well, these things are supposed to convince the customer that we're, we do a good job and we're worthy of your business, and maybe they can do that to a certain extent, but you know what, the way God has made the human psyche, coupled then with the selfishness of the natural man, But the way that God made the human psyche, we like a story. We like a story. And then because of our human fallen nature, our selfish nature, we like us to be the hero in that story. We want to be at the center of this. You can appeal to that. And the commercial world does appeal to that, even take advantage of that, even to the point of dishonesty. The goal, what science has proven to be the most effective thing, is to... To make a story and try to describe your target audience as having this need. They're, they're, they're stuck. They have a problem. They are the ones that need to come out shining in the end and just, what do you want to call it? Victorious, successful, accomplished, deal with this problem. And so you take them, you keep them as the hero, present yourself as the coach, And you give a solution, which if they take your solution, it will help them to get to the achievement they want. Or if you deny it, the ultimate is failure. If they miss it, they miss this solution that you're providing. Keep your audience at the center. And um, so the human psych likes a story with that kind of climax, even a lot of drama, a lot of books, novels, um, movies are built with that kind of, you know, climax and, and uh, you, you, you identify with this hero, you follow this hero through the story or hearing. Um, <clears throat> so there's this, in marketing, there's this um, train, there's this um, scientific backup to use what they call the story brand method. So you make the story, you put the right person in the place that's going to be attractive to them. But God's story, his glory, our story... God is the hero. And if we give ourselves to God as the hero, it turns out we are the ones that win. It is for our ultimate best interest. In the commercial world, where the advertisement is purely about making a sale and maybe even not uh, all ethical in what they deliver, it is about making it look like the customer, the target audience, is the hero. But in the end, it's the company that wins. It's it's your profits. God turns that thing on its head. God turns that thing on its head. But God has created us with that psych for a reason to get caught up in this narrative so that we can get caught up in the eternal narrative. The eternal narrative from beginning to the end that is yet to come. 
God makes us tick that way. God makes our souls satisfied that way. If you turn to 263 in your hymn books, Jesus Shall Reign, for the elder, maybe we can sing this one later on in service. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. For him shall endless prayer be made and praises throng to crown his head. His name like sweet perfume shall rise with every morning sacrifice. To win the heathen is not about the heathen. To help the poor is not about their poverty. To feed the hungry is not about their hunger. To do savings groups for those who or disadvantaged financially, is not about their physical wealth or even management. Ultimately, to do homeschooling is not about your children's education. To clean the house is not about a pleasant environment. Ultimately, it is all those things. And those God has created many of these different things to bring its specific and certain level of satisfaction. But in the end, all of these things can leave us empty. To expand our church is not about our numbers growing and... uh, us becoming somebody. To have a large family is not about something that the world can look on and say, oh, wow. Maybe it's not the world. Maybe it's fellow church members. Look at all those children. Look at all that order. <clears throat> to work hard. I mentioned this this morning with one of the brothers. To work hard on the job site and get the job done well and get it done quickly is not just to amaze the customer. <clears throat> Ultimately, it is much more than that and it must have much more purpose than that. If we can understand this theme of God's glory, it will put everything in its proper place. And so I mentioned a little bit here the, the, the hesitancy that sometimes missionaries have to talk about missions. <clears throat> and I think if we could understand God's grand scheme of things, everything is put in its place. <clears throat> As um, <clears throat> Friedrich Miller mentioned, yes, this does have to do with a biblical basis for missions, but... Um, It's more than that. At the very end, we want to look a little bit at integrated efforts. Um, It's really what brings our lives together. The story of his glory, or his glory, our story. This can take care of of the false dichotomy between social action and spiritual action. It can take care of the false dichotomy of local versus foreign ministry. It can take care of the false dichotomy of family versus outreach. It can take care of the false dichotomy of preservation and purity versus involvement in the world around us. It can take care of the false dichotomy of maintenance in our personal lives in local church versus outreach. It can take care of the quandary of voluntary poverty versus 
lucrative business. It can take care of the quandary of denominational lines or merges, ecumenicism. All these things we're concerned about, ditches in the road. Story. Our lives are a story. God's word is a grand narrative that we are still in the process of working it out today. Let's look a bit at glory. We, if we want to trace through scripture this concept and how that it is central from beginning to end, we need to think of a few different terms, words that are used many, many times throughout scripture and uh, frame them a bit, understand them a bit, and how that maybe they are biblical concepts, a little bit of dif- differences, but one theme. So glory, let's think about this word glory a bit. You're going to find the word glory many, many times through scripture. And <clears throat> maybe you think of glory as an abstract, as uh, just pointing to something that is beautiful, that shines, something that's amazing, maybe superseding anything else, something that is supreme. And uh, that is all right and true and a part of the concept. The word glory in Scripture refers to the essential worth, beauty, and value. It's used in a very broad sense. It's used um, in referring to people. It's usually referring referring to created things. And of course, to the creator himself. To glorify is simply to give recognition to this value, this worth. To worship is to express this worth directly to the person or object. Psalms 86, 9. Let's go there quickly. Psalm 86, 9. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. Glorify thy name. <clears throat> Philippians 3.3 3 says, We worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Glory in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> so, to glo- the, the thing of glory and ascribing glory to glorify is to give worth, to give value <clears throat> um, to the thing that has this glory, to God we're talking about. The name of God. God often talks about his name. And we can think of name in various ways. Um, the more common way in which we use it in everyday life has to do with a specific title or reference to a particular person. That's how he's, he's um, known by. There's a proper noun uh, kind of name. And God has many, many of these. Some people, uh, you can, you can make a wonderful study of the names of God and meditate on the different characteristics of God, uh, attributes of God through those names and be greatly edified, um, as a window into his character. Uh, but actually, the much more common way in which this word name is used in Scripture, when God refers to himself, he's talking about it not so much as a window of an aspect of his attribute, or one of his attributes, but rather as his reputation. That's many more times um, the way that it's used in Scripture. But often, little recognized. Often we don't give proper recognition to um, the way it's most commonly used. I know as a teenager, as I began to come to grips with the the deeper purpose of my life and uh, God's word and missions, uh, and I began to understand this concept, I took this 
thing of glory, this thing of God's name. And as I would read through the Bible, maybe once in a year or whatever it was, over a couple of different um, years, I took a highlighter and just looked for this emphasis. And especially where it's talking about God wanting to share his name, to show his name to universally, to all the peoples of the earth. And I just began to highlight. And literally, my Bible changed colors like never before. <clears throat> I regret I don't have that Bible anymore. It got stolen a couple of years ago in the church house there in ECSA. But around the same time, my wife did the same thing. And she still has her old Bible, so I'm using her old Bible today. <clears throat> God's name. <clears throat> the name of God. And so there's this thing of worship. I know some time ago I, I spoke some about Thanksgiving here. Giving thanks to God and how central it is to our lives and even our faith. <clears throat> And this thing of worship is very similar to that. God wants to be globally famous. But more than that, he yearns to be truly worshipped. He wants his reputation, his name to be known. He expects you and I to be agents of that to the world. But he wants a response. He wants to be worshipped. <clears throat> the little bit more that I know about worship, the more I learn about worship, the more I truly feel like we don't understand worship. And I'll admit that I have often been shy, even repulsed by the whole topic of worship, particularly because of how that Modern American Christianity has boycotted, has, no, boycott's not the word I want, has, has, um, the word of, hijacked, thank you, has hijacked this thing of biblical worship and has abused the concept. They've turned it into something you do up front with the guitar and get yourself into a hype, and I've seen plenty of this in Africa. Get yourself into a hype, into emotional high. And I have seen this many, many times. You haven't been in many Pentecostal services. I haven't heard either in this, here in the States. But I have seen many times where people will do this on a regular basis on a Sunday morning. This is the expected. This is the norm. And maybe this is, I'm afraid many times this is the ultimate in being spiritual. They will get such a, with the throb and the beat and the drums and the guitars and the type of singing and the repetition almost hypnotize, get to emotional high to the point where they crash and they, they fall into weeping and even screaming. <clears throat> I'm sure most of us have in some point for one reason or another experienced some extreme emotional and you can't hit, you can't stay, you can't plateau at that point of emotion. And so there's this, you know, drop off where you come down the other side off this climax and you feel this, this wave of relief and almost cleansing and it becomes a spiritual exercise to them. And <clears throat> I, I don't want that counterfeit. <clears throat> so I can be shy of it and I think we ought to be. <clears throat> But worship is still a biblical thing. And worship is still central to our existence. To our purpose for being placed on this earth. Worship is still central to the, the purpose of gathering with the saints. Not so much gathering necessarily on a Sunday morning, the physical gathering, but being a part of, being a functioning, meaningful part of the body of Christ. And obviously... Meaningful would need to include a local expression of it where you work this out with less than perfect human beings. Worship. Psalm 96, 2 to 4. Shows us one half of this thing. <clears throat> I'm sorry. 
2 to 3. Psalm 96, verses 2 and 3. This thing of, of glory is to be two directions. God expresses it that way. God reveals his glory. He proclaims his glory so that he can be glorified, so that it can be returned. God gives glory even to his people so that they can return that glory to him. It's a very, God designed it to be a very cyclic thing. 96 verses 2 and 3. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name, shew forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. You jump down to verse 7. You declare it, proclaim it through song, through preaching, to, so they can be returned. So you declare it to all the people, and now the call comes for the all the kindreds of the people. Verse 7, give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Unless I miss it later, let me just point out something here in verse 8. Bring an offering and come into his courts. This is many, many times. Sacrifice of praise, sacrifices, worship. I don't know how much we do it here, but I know I've seen it many times, rightfully so, emphasized in Africa, how that we are to bring our offerings as part of our worship. I'm not sure how conscious we are of that. You know, why on a Sunday morning? We don't do any, any, other, any other kind of monetary business on Sundays, do we? <clears throat> but we'll bring money. We'll bring offerings. And it's clear that if it is a sacrificial offering, it's worth much more. No matter if the amount is many times more than the poor person, if that poor person is sacrificing more. So this sacrificial, sacrificing some kind of your resources, it can be your time. It can be stretching yourself into doing something that is not easy for you to do. But you know that God is worthy. This thing needs to be done. And you have it within your ability to do it, whether it's monetary, whether it's a skill, whether it is uh, a task that's not easy for you, whether it is time, sacrifice bringing these sacrifices. And that whole concept of sacrifices is built up all through Scripture. Does God need the bullocks? Does he need the doves? Does he need the sheep? Does he need your money? David makes it clear. The answer is, you know, that's not the reason for this sacrifice. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I think this is the context in which he's saying this. This is why this he's saying this. He's, he's understanding this thing about worship. We find that missions is more powerfully preached in throughout the Psalms then I think you probably could say all of the New Testament combined, especially more than Matthew 28. We don't need Matthew 28 for missions. But it's because David had a grasp on this thing of worship. That's why. Rightfully said about David, he was a man after God's own heart. I don't know of any man that lived in the Old Testament era who had more of a New Testament drive, ethic, comprehension. Note one more thing here in this same psalm. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name. Verse 2 there again for it. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. Why? Verse 4. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. He doesn't say do this because God's amazing. He redeemed me from sin. He delivered me from my addictions. No, the reason is not that I don't have to go to hell now. Whether it's me responding or trying to get the other person to respond. Or my child to come to know Christ. My teenager, whoever it is. It's not a fire escape. Like all the other things I listed before. Those things are realities. They are, they do have a purpose. They do have a place. But that can't be at the root of our motivation. We will be left empty. Let me challenge you, any of us. I, we have all many different places in life but i think at any place in life i've gone through just a couple so far in my life 
different phases of life, I believe we come up empty in what we're pursuing, even though it's a good thing. We have glitches of fulfillment, but that emptiness that comes out many times is because we are missing its intended root. It's more than salvation, is what we're saying. Purpose beyond salvation, that is worship. Purpose even beyond God's worthiness. So it's not just about me and what God can do for me. It's actually beyond God's worthiness. God says many times that he's a jealous God. Hopefully we'll get to a couple of those scriptures. But in saying that he's a jealous God, so many times he's comparing himself. You see this developed in the Old Testament as Abraham moves into the land of promise and God does covenants with him time and time again. And uh, they go through those hundreds of years and he comes back from Egypt and now they're going to, to conquer the land and, and all of these things. Uh, he often talks about, I'm a jealous God and you shall not you know, mix with the heathen and you won't bow down to those idols. <clears throat> Is he just a jealous God to be just like any other one of those idols, any one of those gods? Is it just a petty competition of petty gods pitching themselves against each other? We have to be careful. We don't jump ahead to the conclusion too much because we know, well, those are just idols of stone. Those are worth nothing. Well, I've seen some pretty powerful idols. It might be just an animal skin. and It's been dried for generations, 20, 30, 50, 60 years. But that animal skin can turn to fleshy, fatty, wet skin in a moment's of time because of worshiping an idol. There are There is powers. It's very real to these people. So, is it just God and his jealousy? That might sound bad, just God. I mean, how God is everything, right? God is limitless. God is the source of all things. Um, <clears throat> there is no higher purpose than God's glory. So in that sense, no, it's not just God. That that <clears throat> It is much more than that. But this is cyclic. God knows that as we bring these sacrifices, as we bring these offerings, as we meaningfully do things that are difficult in our lives, in any, any form of our resources, we meaningfully do these things because our hearts are engaged, are enraptured with the glory of God. And we are compelled by that enamoration, if I can say. What happens is, we bring ourselves. We come along with that sacrifice. Now, if it's just out of our bounty, not so much. The token can always do at least something in our hearts. But God wants us to bring sacrifices because it brings us. And God knows that when we bring us, we become like that which we worship. And God knows that when we become like him, the object of our worship, that's to our best interest. That brings us to our highest level of existence, both in this world and then ultimately in the eternal. Remember what we said about marketing? Try to make you look like the hero, but in the end, they're just trying to get the profits. It's the other way around. We don't have you at the center, at the focus. It's God. But behind the scenes, before you know it, without you realizing it, you are the one that profits. God cannot be profited. He has all profit. <laughs> Stop and think about it. Is he, is he blessed? Is there a relationship? Is it meaningful to him? Yes, in all those ways, he's profited. <clears throat> God is not some insecure, supreme being that needs his ego boosted by your worship. He doesn't need your worship. 
Or does he? He has, I believe, woven into his nature um, the the purpose that we would become like him. In that sense, you might say he needs our worship because of what it does to us and all of our realm of influence. So just to develop this a little further, maybe a little bit different words. He is delighted by our love, but by wooing us into true worship, he is able to fully bestow his love upon us. It is for man's best interest, but he misses it. Man will miss this best interest that God has in mind for us. He misses it as soon as it becomes a selfish pursuit. Verse 6 here in Psalm 96 says, Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So you bring your sacrifice. You come into the presence of God. You bring yourself. Now you are before him. And before him, you now possess honor. And majesty. Strength. Beauty. You get to impart, take a part of that in his presence, in his sanctuary. Let's look at the parallel passage, which I believe the psalmist is actually quoting from. If you go back to 1 Chronicles 16, 27. 1 Chronicles, we can go there quickly. Chapter 16, verse 27. A little bit different word is used in this parallel passage. Glory and honor are in his presence. Strength and gladness are in his place. Or joy Deep fulfillment. From God's standpoint, worship is not only the way that people glorify God, but also the way that God glorifies people. You worship is not just the way that people glorify God, but also the way that God glorifies people. Turn with me to John 17. And we're going to take that cycle one more turn. I lose count. I'm not sure how many times we're going around this cycle. I, don't, I think it's, it's God has designed it to be infinity. John 17. Jesus says this in his high priestly prayer. He says, Father, this is how he starts his prayer. The hour is come, glorify that thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. God wants you to worship. Not to only to glorify him, but that God can glorify you. And why would God glorify you? Have you ever dared to pray this prayer? Lord, here I am. Glorify Tim. Have you ever prayed that kind of prayer about yourself? So that Tim can glorify you. If you don't glorify me, I can't glorify you. And because you have glorified me in the whole range of all the aspects of life, the fact that I have a breath today physically, I have abilities, I have strengths, I have whatever, um, I have emotional abilities, I have spiritual abilities, background experiences, truths I understand, the whole part the whole makeup of man god has given this to me he has already glorified me but i pray god glorify me so i can glorify you and i'm just remembering uh, i think i'm just going to try this go to the last verse of the same prayer i have declared unto them thy name jesus is praying the very other the Opposite end of the same prayer. I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. Do you feel this cycle? This wheel turning? Infinitely. Jesus declares thy name, which... Bringing these these two concepts together as one theme through Scripture, Jesus is 
by declaring God's name, the Father's name, he's glorifying the Father. He's declaring the reputation, the, the who God is. And he's talking about how that through his life, he's praying, he's committing all this to God, his life's ministry. And he's saying, I have declared your name. I have been faithful in glorifying you by declaring to the world, especially to my disciples, who you are. And I will continue. And the purpose is so that the love that you've loved me with, that love will be in them. And I think that takes the whole range of concepts of uh, they're not only going to feel my love and feel the Father's love, but these disciples are going to possess that love, that ability to love others. It will be in them. And as this love, they partake of this love, they partake of Christ himself. I in them. I, Jesus, dwell in them. Let's go to Genesis chapter 12. We see this grand scheme really coming out clear. First, in Genesis chapter 12, we could look at it uh, in some form, coming forth there by the promises given to Eve right after the fall. But this, I believe, is directly linked here as well. When God told Abraham, Abram, at that point, to leave his kindred and his country, he said, get out of your country, from your kindred, from your father's house, into a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee. Not too different from what we just got finished talking about. Glorify thee. I will bless thee and make thy name great. Well, that definitely sounds like glory. And thou shalt be a blessing. Command and promise. Together. I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. As a result thereof. Blessing for the purpose of you to be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. We believe ultimately it is only possible for every family of the earth, both during his time and up to date, to be blessed, not because Abraham comes and visits every single house and pronounces a blessing on that house, but through his seed, the Messiah came, and that is the blessing available to all the families of the earth. We want to jump down now and note what happens. When he obeys, he goes forth, he comes into the land, the promised land. God visits him there, starts giving him promises. Um, He passed through the land in verse 6. Verse 7, the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. I think he's basically saying, Okay, Abram, you are at the place. This is it. And Abram responds with a what? With an altar where he makes sacrifices and he worships. And he moved a little bit to the next mountain there, east of Bethel, verse 8, and he builds an altar unto the Lord and calls upon the name of the Lord. You know, we can look at a lot of ways. Abram was a poor missionary. He quaked in front of the kings and he said lies and he put his wife and his marriage in jeopardy and he he did all kinds of things that just weren't very brave you wouldn't really say he would fit the picture but one thing that abram did he worshiped he was faithful in his worship and every time he built those altars with stone i think there's reason they use stone rather than well in africa we can use mud bricks quite well to build houses and all kinds of things <clears throat> He used stone. I believe those stones stood for generations. I was going to look it up. didn't take the time, but I, I think there's indication of that. And those generations, perhaps while he was gone and the Israelite tribe was growing there in Egypt, the local people, oh yeah, Abram must have camped here. Yep, those stones, that's where he worshipped his God. 
They were tokens of the worthy worship of God through all those generations. He worshipped. Another thing significant about Abram, let's turn yet to Genesis 18. Genesis 18. Verse 17. To 19. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great, or we could say a very glorified, mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. He will be an agent for my blessing to all the world. Okay? So because of this, and, verse 19, So we take the lofty, the grand scheme, and make it practical. Verse 19, another reason. I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring. This is so that this is the means through which the Lord will bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. So, shall I hide from him that which I'm going to do? And he starts talking with Abraham, communing with Abraham about Sodom. But very, very significant there, things he has to say about Abraham and why he feels this obligation, in a sense, to consult, in a sense, with Abraham and give Abraham this opportunity for this intercessory interaction. <clears throat> yes, this grand scheme of thing and God's heart from the beginning of creation up through to now and on past to Revelation, the end of time, to bring all peoples, all people groups of all the world, of every generation, to know him and to glorify him and to enter into this covenant and enter into this grouping of uh, being a part of his people or peoples of his people. God depended on Abraham's faithfulness to command his children after him. That was a means through which God was going to do this. And God knew that Abraham was someone he could count on that was going to do that. Any less for you and I? No. Through my lineage, Jesus won't be born into the world, that aspect of it, no. But really, any less through you and I? I really appreciate all the practical things we heard uh, this last weekend about child re- rearing and purpose for that. And and he did. Um, our speaker did touch on this a little bit. But just zoom out a little bit. When you're tempted to be a little bit too lenient on that two-year-old or five-year-old or six or 16-year-old, and it would be easier to take the path of least resistance. But you know what you should do. You know how you should train, how you should teach, what you should consistently apply, whatever it is. You don't want that confrontation with the will. But can can God count on you? Like he did Abraham? To propagate? Command your children after you? Now, if that is true in the broad vision of uh, child training and broader than that, relationships and and proper relationships, healthy relationships, close relationships even in the home. I think you can break it down from there. So this afternoon, you're going to go home. You have some priorities. Some of us are going to make some priorities spending time with our children this afternoon. It might be a game. It might be a walk. If it's not too cold out there. It might be ministering to the neighbor. It might be going to sing for someone. Maybe yesterday it was a work project you did to help someone. But we do things intentionally, I hope so, with our children. Practical things. You're going to be teaching school, some of you, tomorrow morning. We, we break this down to many, many, many little practical choices we make. So yes, Rolling marbles on the floor can have to do with the grand scheme of Genesis to the great white throne in Revelations. 
I have several times more scriptures prepared to go through. Psalms, life of Abraham, the Exodus, the conquest, the temple, the destiny of Israel, the glory of God in Christ, the Apostle Paul, and the rehearsal in the Revelations. But I think I'll leave you with that picture for today. May God bless you.